Welcome to episode 213 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. This is going to be another deep dive. It's been a while since we've done one of these, eh? Yeah, yeah. So we're going to spend some time just talking about what to observe in a, a number of different constellations that are prominent right now in the spring sky. Uh, you know, we always do our monthly episode of what kind of a what's up or what to observe, but that one usually has more of a solar system focus. So this one will be more deep sky stuff. Yeah. So I'm Chris. The other guy talking is Shane. We're amateur astronomers. Love looking at the night sky and this podcast. Anybody else that looks going up into the stars. So I'm excited. I see Libra is on the horizon now when it's getting dark. However, it's getting dark later and later each night, unfortunately. Yeah. It's a double-edged sword, isn't it? You know, it gets warmer, but then darkness starts to elude us a little bit and it's, it's challenging, but uh, yeah, it is exciting to see Libra. Uh, is there anything that you're hoping to observe in that part of the sky? Maybe. Yeah. Maybe a few things. Um, Libra is pretty exciting because there's some globular clusters and that down there. There's some like, that's sort of the leading edge. Libra used to be part of Scorpius. Of course, used to be one of the claws. So, um, and the neat thing about Libra here, maybe the, the bad thing about Libra here is that we only get like this really small window at the very end of April and to, to the, maybe the first few days of June, um, to see it when it culminates at about, uh, 1230 or so, um, you barely get it in a dark sky. Um, you know, because that portion of the sky is the portion of the sky that's uh, typically highest, um, or very close to being highest when the, uh, the sun is just, uh, uh, over the Northern horizon here. So we're, we're pretty much into perpetual twilight when it's up, but there, there are kind of these brief, almost minutes when, when Libra does culminate in, in a dark sky. And, uh, you, you do get that happening around uh, this time of year for a very, very short, you know, maybe five week period of time or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, folks that are further South than we are, we're at, uh, about 50 degrees latitude, the further south you go, the you know the better views you'll have of Libra. Further north you go, it's even worse. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a neat time of year though, because you know, and uh, and for me, it's it's a little bit of a cosmic desert because um, I really like to observe large extended nebulae, and there's not many <laughs> this time of year to be able to see. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot more galaxy observing and, and some clusters out there, but yeah, yeah. The big, the big extended nebulas, we got to wait a little while. Yeah. So maybe we'll start there. That's a good segue. I don't know if you intended that or not, but uh, what, what is a galaxy just, just generally Shane? And what, what do we see through a telescope when we see a, a galaxy through binoculars or a telescope? Um, well, so Galaxies are, are a big collection of, of dust, gas, uh, dark matter, uh, stars, um, and you know millions to trillions of stars, but they're all bound together gravitationally. Um, so when we look up at the night sky, uh, we see a whole bunch of stars. Those stars are pretty much exclusively a part of the Milky Way galaxy. Um, they don't extend beyond that. Now, there are some galaxies that we can see naked eye, like the Andromeda galaxy and uh, a couple others. Um, but typically, you know, the, uh, the, the world of galaxies or the realm of galaxies, I guess, is, uh, is uh, visible through optics. You typically will want a telescope to start to really pull those in. 
Yeah. It, and, you know, the, the one thing that I always think about when I think about galaxies and sort of their description is, um, you know, Immanuel Kant's um, theory of the island universe or, or his, I, I guess, writings um, about the theory of the island universe, um, which was based on uh, some earlier astronomers' uh, observations. And uh, it, it was William Herschel's observations after Kant came out with his um, island universe sort of quote um, that uh, that kind of solidified his his sort of early ideas. Of course, his ideas wouldn't be proved out until uh, Edwin Hubble and and the Cepheid variables, which which you had mentioned uh, in the past episode, um, which Hubble observed, I think it was in the uh, 1920s um, through through the Mount Wilson uh, Observatory Telescope. Um, but anyway, yeah, like those those galaxies are just uh, basically congregations of stars and dust and nebula all on their own, um, all kind of packed in t- together into a very tight region of sky that, that we see. But uh, for the most part, everything that we see and with our eye and and for the most part with binoculars um, in our night sky, that's our own galaxy, eh? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I remember Chris, when kind of earlier on in, in my astronaut or my amateur a- astronomical career, if you want to call it that, um, that, that was a, like when I got that realization that the stars in the sky are not like all spread across the universe, that they are just our galaxy. And there's a whole bunch of other galaxies out there with more and more stars. It, uh, it, it, it really, you know, is a humbling thought, right. Of just how large, how large the universe really is. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty wild to think about. And, uh, you know, it, at this time of year, it's, it's a, it's an interesting time because we can see both, uh, many galaxies. Cause we have the, like the Virgo supercluster is, uh, culminating on the meridian, um, on these evenings, and that gives you an opportunity to explore some of the really big and, and bright galaxies that are in like a whole other region of the universe, um, kind of centered in around M87, um, which I think you can probably see M87 with good binoculars from a really dark site. And anyway, mm-hmm. it's pretty easy in a small telescope. Uh, and then that whole region of like Markarian's chain, and then there's certainly other galaxies around. But then also we, we have some... Uh, open and, and globular clusters uh, that can be seen as well. And you, you kind of referenced uh, these a little bit, but um, you know, Shane, what, what is the difference between an open and a globular cluster? Maybe we'll start there and then we'll get into some of these constellations. Yeah, there, there's quite a few differences, um, but maybe one of the similarities is they are, uh, they are a collection of stars that are all gravitationally, uh, connected somehow. They're, they're interacting upon each other gravitationally. Uh, globular clusters uh, got their name because they sort of look like a globe. Like they're typically uh, like a um, roundish in shape, a very dense core of stars. Uh, in a globular cluster, there's usually hundreds or thousands of stars. Um, and they are typically the oldest stars that are in the galaxy. Um, now open clusters in terms of shape are the exact opposite. They have no defined shape. Uh, open clusters can represent anything. It's just, uh, again, a, a grouping of stars that are, um, gravitationally interacting upon each other. Uh, open clusters are usually smaller in terms of how many members they have. Um, you know, probably in the 
tens or dozens to hundreds uh, of stars are in an open cluster. Um, and these are usually younger stars uh, that are uh, mm -hmm. new to the galaxy. Um, so there's, there's a, a whole bunch of globulars in the sky that we can see, and there's a whole bunch of open clusters in the sky that we can see. Yeah. And so what do they look like through like a small telescope, like what you and I typically use, like three to five inch instruments? So like what does an open cluster look like and, and what does a globular cluster look like? Yeah. So globulars for smaller telescopes will just look like uh, almost like a comet. If you've ever seen one of those, mm. you know, it'll look like sort of a, just a round fuzzy puff of light out there. Uh, globulars usually benefit from more aperture. You know, if you have an eight inch Newtonian or excuse me, something along those lines, that, that's when you can start to pull out like individual stars. Um, and, and it's kind of fun. Like if you have larger aperture, uh, if you look at, you know, probably the most famous cluster in the Northern hemisphere is M13, the great Hercules uh, globular. Uh, mm. It's fun to try to count how many individual stars you can actually observe at the eyepiece. Um, but anyway, in smaller aperture, like what you and I observe with, they're usually, it's usually harder to pull out the individual stars in a globular. Mm -hmm. Now, open clusters, um, this is where smaller telescopes can um, uh, really become uh, the desired telescope to use because open clusters are often, uh, they often occupy a larger uh, part of the sky. So you need a wider field of view to take them all in. Smaller telescopes can give you much wider fields of view. Um, and because the stars aren't all packed together, it's quite easy to count the stars and see how many are out there. And, um, it's, it's kind of fun too, with open clusters, um, like in say the Pleiades, uh, you know, probably, you know, arguably one of the most famous open clusters. Um, it's fun to look at, you know, how many of those stars are actually double stars and, you know, mm -hmm. the color differences of the stars, uh, it becomes quite interesting. Uh, but as for patterns with these open clusters, the, again, there's no two that are the same. Uh, they're, they're very unique and, um, uh, you sometimes, you know, kind of draw your own lines and create your own shapes, uh, that you see within an open cluster. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one of the other, uh, sort of neat or maybe a little bit strange things about them, uh, the globular and the open clusters are that the, uh, the globular clusters hang out like in the halo sort of above and below the galactic plane of the Milky mm. Way. So if you think about the Milky Way galaxy is kind of like um, maybe a, maybe like a record or an old, um, you know, uh, car hubcap where it has sort of that bulge in the center and then it kind of is, is thinner, um, you know, around the disc, um, you know, sort of floating above that hub and below the hub are, are the globular clusters, whereas the open clusters uh, tend to hang out uh, closer to, to the plane of, uh, of the galactic, uh, dist. It's just uh, part of their, uh, part of their makeup. Um, all right, let's, let's move on and let's chat. We'll, we'll do a, a brief overview of, uh, of the main, uh, I guess, uh, I don't know, pointer constellations, uh, pointer stars and constellations. And then we'll, we'll talk a little bit about Hydra and it's, uh, it's nearby, uh, constellations. So in, in the springtime sky, Shane, we, we often talk about um, arcing um, to, to Arcturus. Mm -hmm. We talk about finding uh, Boots the Herdsman by finding the Big Dipper, and then you use the handle of the Big Dipper to arc down 
to Arcturus and then to uh, to speed on to uh, Spica. So we have uh, a set of sort of these main constellations. So first of all, we have Orion and Gemini and uh, Canis Major and Canis Minor kind of setting uh, over in, in the western sky. And as as they exit, we're kind of left with sort of Castor and Pollux and Gemini sitting up there and and maybe a couple of the other winter stars, um, but then kind of Leo and, and Virgo are, are taking center stage as, as Arcturus and Boots are, are rising um, pretty uh, pretty high in the nighttime sky. But do you use like the Dipper and, and those sort of pointer stars or how, how do you find your, your way around this, uh, this springtime sky? Uh, yeah, yeah. Sometimes I do, uh, particularly the Arcturus. Uh, you know, I, it just seems to, when I do that, it cements where I am in the sky. And from there, the, uh, the other stuff is quite prominent. One of the other things that I do is, is, um, I look more for the asterisms than mm-hmm. sometimes the constellations. Cause I find sometimes the asterisms, uh, just stand out a little bit more for me. So, you know, the, like within Ursa major, the big dipper is actually the asterism there, uh, within Leo, uh, the sickle, um, or the sort of a backwards question mark, uh, you know, really stands out for me there. Um, and then with Gemini, like once you get to know Castor and mm. Pollux, like they're, they're twins, you know, they're very prominent stars that look identical. And, uh, you know, that's, that's another grounding, I guess, or a way that I kind of get grounded in the, in the night sky at this time of the year. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that's similar to how I do it as well. I, I really do find that, uh, that Gemini, um, at this time of year, those, those twins, they really look like the twins. This to me, anyway, this is the time of year that Gemini really takes on its namesake of being kind of two, um, you know, sort of very I don't know, like stick people, I guess maybe is the best way to put them like two stick people in, in the sky. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's really what, what they look like to me, because as that constellation rotates uh, around, at least for us uh, here where we live, um, they're, they're kind of standing up. And then, like you said, Leo is sitting right on, on the meridian. And, and I find the pattern of Leo, it like, as I scan across the sky and I find Regulus, um, which is the brightest star in Leo, um, then, you know, as soon as I see that, I, that pattern stands out, sometimes the pattern stands out first, but like you said, that, that sickle backwards question mark, and then the triangle, um, mm-hmm. though I really don't know what it looks like. It doesn't really look like a lion to me, but that's a unique pattern of stars. eh? It is, it is. Yeah. And it reminds me more of like the Sphinx, you know, like, uh, sort of, you know, like a, a lion yeah. sort of sitting on its front paws, um, but the, the thing too, with Leo that I'll mention, and, and this is, you and I have talked about this a little bit in previous episodes about the, the scale of the sky compared mm-hmm. to like a star chart. And Leo is one that even now, like when I look at a star chart and I look up at the sky and see Leo, Leo is really large. And I don't find too many star charts actually capture that scale very well for me. And maybe yeah. it's just a me thing, but uh, Leo does occupy a large part of the sky. Yeah, you're you're totally right there, and that's the one thing I try to convey. Like I was just saying uh, before we recorded, going to start teaching my astronomy class in about three weeks' time, and uh, that's one of the things that I always go over with people. Like you know, when you're you're looking at the little chart or your software or whatever, um, the thing that that the charts um, struggle to convey is that scale because things in the sky are huge, 
And we've talked about this before many, many times for people that have listened to the show um, is that your fist at arm's length is 10 degrees on the nighttime sky. And when you're using a, a chart or software in that, like where, where is, is that scale, right? You want to make sure that, um, you know, that's one reason why you and I prefer to use um, pretty big uh, fold out paper charts because the scale is always the same and it's set to, uh, to more or less uh, that kind of that kind of ratio it makes it a, a quite a bit easier for learning the night sky. And, and honestly, Shane, I think you and I have both seen this where people uh, come out with their planetarium software and they're, they're trying to look for a constellation, but they've got the whole night sky represented on the planetarium software. And so all the constellations are, are tiny. They're like, uh, you know, maybe a centimeter or two, if you held your phone up at arm's length and then, you know, that constellation of Leo is, is, I don't know, like 30 or 40 degrees across or something. So, you know, it's, uh, you know, maybe, uh, you know, 10 or a hundred times larger on the night sky. It's very difficult to, to kind of parse the, the information that your phone's giving you and then relate it to, uh, to the actual star, uh, patterns on the nighttime sky, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's not like an, an insurmountable thing. It just, it does catch me sometimes and, mm-hmm. and you get used to it pretty quick. Once you actually start looking up at the stars and, and, you know, relating them to the star chart you're looking at. Yeah. I find boots, uh, the herdsman, um, doesn't look like a herdsman to me. It just looks no. like this giant kite yeah. and Arcturus, um, is, uh, this super bright orange star. And I find that, uh, it, it looks to my eye anyway, it looks, um, so different from any other star. I can almost just look at that star and say, hey, you know, that's Arcturus, um, mm-hmm. And then I kind of very quickly then, then see that, uh, that kite pattern. Um, but unlike, uh, Leo and unlike boots, um, Virgo, uh, sits between these two constellations, but to me, it, it doesn't really look like much of anything like, you know, in the pattern that I have up on our screens here, Shane, um, I, I gotta say, I don't really see much of a pattern at all. Typically I just see uh, spica and then, you know, uh, uh, maybe five or six sort of almost seems like random stars sort of scattered around in that region of the sky. And basically I know that, uh, that spica is, uh, is at the bottom of, uh, you know, of, of, uh, equilateral triangle more or less, uh, between Arcturus Regulus and then spica sort of forms this up, down, upside down peak, uh, mm-hmm. more or less. And, and that's kind of how I navigate that zone of the sky. Yeah. Yeah. The, the Virgo part of the sky, like other than spica, um, there's not a lot of prominent stars there, although, mm. you know, once you get familiar there, it does jump a bit more, but, but yeah, agreed. It, it, it lacks, it, it lacks the, um, the visual representation of what Virgo is supposed to be. <laughs> uh, yeah, I just, I just see a few stars with, uh, you know, sort of a, a bit of a line and then I don't know, you know, a, a jut out to the left sort of, but Yeah. And, and it doesn't really look like much of anything. It's supposed to look somewhat like the female form, I suppose, but uh, certainly don't, don't see that. Um, and then kind of sort of uh, above and, and again, in, in between all these constellations is Coma Berenices, which doesn't really look like anything except for a right angle triangle, which, which is, I find that one sticks out really uh, prominent. And then we have um, the Coma Berenices cluster in Milad, uh 111, which is a huge open cluster, which sort of almost sits, um, you know, directly between like, uh, Arcturus and, and sort of the top of, of Leo there and, uh, is, is pretty prominent, uh, 
in that region of sky. I think even though it, it doesn't really look like much on the on the star charts, I think that's uh, one of the more interesting regions. Agreed. Yeah, for sure it is. Yeah. So let's uh, now that we that's kind of the the orientation. We have these um, these main patterns: uh, Ursa Major, your arc to Arcturus. Um, you stay on that same arc to get down to Spica. And then, um, you know, you can kind of keep looping um, up and to the right, which, which will get you to Regulus and Leo, or you can find um, pattern of, of Leo, which is, and, and Gemini, which are the ones that, that we tend to find, and then kind of work, work your way around. But just almost straight down and a little bit to, to the west of Leo is Hydra, which, uh, you know, again, I don't know. What, what do you think Hydra looks like? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, part, you know, part of this too, is we don't see all of Hydra this far North, but it, it doesn't look like much, right? It's there's, there's just some stars in a line. Um, so I, I guess in a way this does represent a serpent, you know, it, it makes sense to me, but it is really just, you know, a bunch of stars that cover, uh, a huge part of the sky. In fact, what is it like seven hours of right ascension uh, Hydra covers? Yeah. Yeah. Something, uh, something like that. Um, but it is, you know, it is one of those ones that you do kind of have to trace out and there, there's some interesting stuff to do with Hydra. So one of the things that I like with Hydra is that it kind of wraps around or maybe uh, snakes around um, slithers around perhaps a, a pile of different, uh, constellations, and that's uh, sort of Cancer, which is on its uh, northwesterly tip, and then it goes by uh, Sextans, and then it goes by Crater, and goes by Corvus, which uh, bracketed to to the north uh, and northeast a little bit, and then to the southwest uh, we have Pyxis, Puppis, and Antlia, um, which is pretty neat. So you have this this really large constellation kind of wrapping around the spring sky and then in and around it, I guess, except for uh, Puppas, maybe um, all these other constellations are, are actually really small constellations, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, they are, uh, especially relative to Hydra. Uh, they're quite small. Yeah. And, and Hydra really is big. Like it starts at, uh, at about eight hours um, or, or just a little bit over eight hours of right ascension and it, and it finishes just over 15 hours of right ascension and it spans from negative 30 to almost positive 10. So it, it is, it basically does sort of hug for us anyway, that Southern, uh, extent of the, uh, of the spring sky and kind of as, as, as the spring sky begins to set, it kind of sort of tips up a little bit. So there's, there's at one point and we can see it all here from, uh, from where we live at 50 degrees North. Um, but there is like that point as we get into later spring where it's sort of like this huge line across the, uh, Southern sky for us anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and those sort of fainter stars, uh, that that's Hydra. But one of the neat things, um, that I find anyway, Shane, is that because all these, uh, bracketing constellations or all these bordering constellations are all pretty small. One thing that I've done in the past is uh, remember those uh, really wide angle binoculars that we had printed out. Yep. Yep. The two by 42s or whatever they are. Yeah. And, and basically what they do is they just give you kind of like super eyes, right? They, yep. they, they, they collect a little bit more light, but they only take you down like a couple magnitudes or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And exceptionally wide field of view. 
like probably 20 degrees, I think is what we calculated it at or 25. I can't remember. Something. It gives you a really wide field of view, like your fist arms length. That's about 10 degrees. Um, most binoculars have between like five and say a really wide field pair might have eight or nine degrees. Um, but these uh, have at least 20 degrees, maybe, maybe a little bit more than that. And uh, one spring, what I was able to do this, this was just, uh, I think the year we made them up because we made them up in the winter. I was really excited to use them. I remember when I went out, I went out in the one early morning, one frosty morning. And uh, I was like, huh, I want to test these out. And I want to look at some stuff. And I actually scanned through and I went from like cancer and I looked at, um, I looked at M44, the beehive cluster, uh, and then kind of scanned down. I could see like, huge tracks of stars and that head of Hydra, which has like this sort of weird little funny, um, almost like Pentagon type pattern. And then I could see kind of the trail of stars and could pan through and see like sextons. And then, uh, like you can see like the whole constellation of sextons and a huge portion of Hydra. And then you could pan over and see all of crater and like even a portion of Hydra and Corvus in the same field of view. And then, you know, you can see all of Corvus in, in the same view and some of Hydra. And it's really neat to, to take those and to, and to pan uh, along that constellation. Cause I think sometimes people maybe wonder why, why would you make such a binocular to just as a huge field of view, but doesn't really collect much more, uh, much more light, but it does sort of bring in some of these um, sort of fainter patterns, sort of like some of the lesser uh, known or, or, or less popular constellations. Anyway, it's sort of a neat use. I'm not sure what you think of that. Yeah, they're, they're incredible. They're, they're very, they're, they're extremely fun to use. They're great for viewing, you know, constellations or just the Milky Way, like sweeping large parts of the sky. And yeah, really what you said here is, is they're almost ideal for like kind of that Hydra region. Yeah. So Hydra is a, is a Greek constellation and it's based uh, or an adaption or an adaptation of uh, a Babylonian constellation uh, of a serpent, uh, which was represented in the, uh, in the mall Appen. But there is uh, there is a, a Greek tale, uh, no pun intended, because here we are talking about a twisting snake and, uh, and, and some of the Greek myths. So one myth associates it with uh, a water snake um, that a crow uh, served Apollo um, in a cup when it was sent to fetch water. So Apollo, um, what, what, what was happening was this, this crow was a servant, I guess, of, of Apollo, who's one of the Greek gods. And Apollo had, uh, had sent the crow um, to get some water. And uh, anyway, the crow tried to pull the wool over, or the, yeah, the crow tried to pull the wool over uh, Apollo's eye uh, saying, you know, that uh, something happened with the snake anyway. Um, but Apollo saw through, uh, you know, the, the fraud and angrily cast the, uh, the cup and the crow, uh, and the snake in, into the night sky. Kind of, I guess the, the crow tried to blame the snake that it didn't get the water or something like that. Um, Hydra is also associated, um, with a monster, um, of many heads, the one that uh, killed Hercules, uh, and, and, you know, can be represented, uh, as, as other constellations as, as well, I suppose. But according to that legend, if, if one of the Hydra's heads was cut off, uh, two more would grow in its place. So, however, uh, Hercules uh, burned out the roots of the heads 
in, in order to prevent that from from happening again. But it's kind of neat to think about sort of this, you know, that that little head of of Hydra and all these sort of smaller constellations around. I mean, you can almost sort of imagine um, the sky kind of depicting all those uh, all those those sort of different multi multi heads, perhaps of uh, of the snake there, eh? Maybe yeah. perhaps a little bit. Sorry, uh, you broke up a little bit. There. Oh, maybe maybe you can imagine that a little bit. That, yeah, well, that yeah, small yeah. constellations are a variety of of heads for the hydra snake. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure, it's uh, it's an interesting tale. Yeah, uh, the brightest star we have there is uh, is Alfard, and uh, fairly interesting star to look at. It's sort of this orangey star once you actually look at it through the telescope. Um, and uh, in Arabic, it means the the solitary one. There's not many bright stars in that region of sky. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a fairly, um, bright star, you know, it's, uh, a little bit fainter than, uh, than Spica, but, uh, but really not much when you think of that region, of the sky is not having many bright stars, but, uh, but that that's one that you can see from the city and, uh, really can help kind of guide your way, uh, around the zone of the sky, because there are not many bright stars in any of these constellations really. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's a, there's a lot of interesting stars, uh, in Hydra, um, a pile of doubles. Um, I don't, we, we don't have the time to get into, uh, to all of those. Um, but there's also a really interesting variable there. If you don't mind, Chris, I'll just take a minute to, you go to talk it. about that. Uh, so it's R Hydra. Um, so I'm just oh, reading yeah. out of, uh, Phil Harrington's book, uh, touring the universe through binoculars. So tuba. tuba. That's the name of the star? No, no. Tuba is the abbreviation for the book. Everybody calls it Tuba. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Um, so what Phil wrote here is uh, R hydrae is one of the easiest long period variables for amateur astronomers to observe. Uh, sharp-eyed observers have been known to spot it without any optical aid uh, as it rises to fourth magnitude or even brighter uh, every 390 days. Uh, binoculars displayed as a dazzling red beacon when near its peak. However, uh, when it cycles downward, it bottoms out at around 11th magnitude. Uh, so some binoculars would still pick that up, but, um, anyway, that's pretty exciting. And that's a huge swing, uh, of magnitude, you know, to go from four to 11, um, and you know, something that is kind of neat, right? Cause it's 390 days. Um, it's something that you can, you know, come back to and, and observe over the season to see how it changes. Hmm. Yeah, that's really neat. Uh, I was just looking up to see if that was a carbon star, but I can't find it. Uh, might be a mirror type star. looks like, huh? Anyway. Yeah. There's another one. I thought maybe it was the one I observed, but I think it's V hydra, which I observed, which is the the carbon star. I knew there was, there was one of those ones up there that I take a look at uh, pretty frequently. Huh. Any, any other ones that kind of struck your fancy there, Shane? Maybe I will just read one of the doubles here. Um, just trying to pick one out real quick. Uh, this would be Struve 1273. Uh, so it's actually a, a quintuple, but that's only using uh, spectroscopic observing techniques, but it is a visual triple. Um, so, uh, it's a very dark field. The three stars, uh, that you can see visually, um, are magnitude 3.5, 6.7 and 12.5. So the 12.5 is starting to push the limits of, of, uh, you know, smaller telescopes for sure. Um, so you may not pick out all three, uh, depending on what aperture you're using. 
but uh, that one is kind of interesting. Um, and like I said, there's just a pile of them. And, and if you have the, the Cambridge double star Atlas, um, the, uh, the author who is, what is his name again? Uh, uh, Bruce Mac McAvoy and Will Tyrion. Uh, they have a list at the back of all of the doubles that are plotted in the Atlas, but they put stars beside like kind of the, the prominent ones or like the real showpiece doubles. And in Hydra, there's got to be at least half a dozen of those uh, sitting here, two, four, six, uh, there's eight actually of those. Mm. So if you're a double star observer, um, there's a lot to see in Hydra. And I really recommend the uh, the Cambridge double star atlas uh, to guide you through there. Hmm. All right. Sounds, uh, sounds good there, Shane. Um, let's see, kind of moving along. If you go sort of, it's just like going to be a bit of a random tour, I guess, but at the very uh, sort of easterly uh, end or getting towards the easterly end of, uh, of Hydra. And I guess this, this object I'm picking kind of first ish is because uh, it's pretty bright and it's one of those um, messy objects that people often miss because of uh, of the brief amount of time it's it's well placed above the horizon and that's the galaxy m83 which is a really bright spiral galaxy that you can see in like binoculars and small telescopes um, but again because it only culminates for this um, you know brief period of time like whatever it is like six or eight weeks um, you really gotta get a good night uh, to be able to see it and sometimes like many years I never get to see it because between when the snow melts and maybe getting some poor weather and then finally getting around to get out. Maybe I forget to, to look at it one night or it's behind a tree or a house or something. Then that's it. I often go for a few years without seeing it, even though it's such a fantastic um, face on spiral uh, to take a look at it. Have you, do you, do you have any good memories of seeing M83? Uh, yeah, it's a fantastic galaxy. Uh, the memory that I have though is not wonderful because like you said, it's, it's very challenging for us mm. here. And that I, if I remember correctly, I think that was my most challenging Messier object just because of the, the sh very short window you have to, to find it. Yeah. But what, uh, what it shows in uh, like a decent, like 12 inch uh, telescope is like these beautiful spiral arms. And you can actually start to pick out some of the star forming regions, which is uh, quite fantastic. Yeah. To be able to do that visually, like that is not in, like, there's not many galaxies you can do that with. So that, uh, yeah. M83 is a real showpiece. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty low on the horizon. And in fact, like um, if you do, if you're able to get further South kind of at this time of year, then you can kind of use uh, M83 as, uh, as a bit of a guidepost to be able to find things like um, Centaurus A and, and, and some of the, uh, you know, those showpiece Centaurus object kind of make your way down from M83 uh, to take a look at those. But of course, those are like literally at the horizon or just below our horizon here. And, uh, and even, even from, uh, you know, the, the ocean side, um, you know, half a dozen degrees further south, I, I was never able to, uh, to see any kind of hints of, uh, of Alpha Centauri or uh, anything like that down there. Um, but some of the other things that you can see are M48, which is, uh, like sort of a sparse open cluster. Um, and then M68, which is a globular cluster, which is actually quite a nice large globular cluster, which is uh, just a little bit to, to the Northwest of M83. So um, those are some pretty bright uh, and different types of objects. So you get a bright galaxy, 
get a bright open cluster and you have a bright globular cluster and to be able to see those all in one night can, uh, can really be an interesting observing session. Yeah. Yeah. And for anybody that is, you know, of similar latitudes that is working on their Messier list, uh, make sure Hydra becomes a priority for you be, because you, you just don't have a lot of opportunity to, to pull out all of the objects there. No. And then one of the, one of the brighter planetary nebulas in the sky is uh, in this region as well, which is the ghost of Jupiter oh, yes. uh, planetary nebula. And that definitely is worth hunting down. Um, boy, that was, I remember when I saw that, when I was observing um, uh, at, uh, at, a, at this person's farm, um, they, they had like the farmhouse that they had bought from, uh, you know, when, when the farm was sold, they didn't own the farmland around it. But I remember uh, when I was in Ontario, I was observing uh, the ghost of Jupiter um, sort of from this, this person's back lot spot that they had set up for observers, but nobody ever used it. And uh, I remember going up there and observing this one night and just being really surprised um, that I observed for uh, 10 or 12 years before I ever looked at the ghost of Jupiter. It was really neat to see. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a super cool object. I haven't looked at that for a long time. Um, you know, if we get out for some dark sky observing, I think I'll make that pretty high on the list. Yeah. I think all of these are are pretty neat. Cause I haven't seen that one in, in a long time either. Uh, just because, um, and one of the reasons why I did want to get a, a different site is that in the spring here, the spot that we usually go to has that huge line of trees just to the mm-hmm. south, and mm-hmm. we can't see much from uh, 30, uh, 35 uh, degrees above the horizon to the south down. So uh, we've sort of been missing some of these objects because the other sites that we have are too muddy. This site isn't muddy, but it's um, it, it just doesn't have a great south. But uh, anyway, my site has a pretty good south. Um, a bell 33, I've never seen a bell 33, which is I, the reason why I put that in here though, it, it, it's this beautiful ghostly nebula almost looks like a blueberry or something like that. Have you ever seen that or heard of anybody observing? And I, I think I've seen observations and sketches, uh, through like 16 or 18 inch telescopes, but I, I've never taken a look at it myself. Yeah, no, I've, I've never looked at it and I no, that one doesn't stand out as anything that I've seen through another person's telescope. Yeah. And then we have the uh, globular cluster uh, NGC uh, 6535, um, which is like a sort of a broken apart uh, globular uh, cluster. Let's see. So kind of uh, moving on from Hydra uh, and actually right above the head of Hydra, we have Cancer the Crab, which is a pretty neat constellation. It's small. But I find it's very distinct because it almost has, I think it's like the, the it, is it like a gamma, a gamma symbol or lambda? Maybe it's a lambda symbol. Something like that looks like an upside down Y. Mm, and I, mm-hmm, I feel yeah. like that's really what it looks like there, right? Yeah. Yeah. It, that, that's a really good description. I've never really thought about that, but you're right. It, it does take that shape. Yeah. And then just uh, almost right at the center um, of, of like where all these points cross for the Y we have, um, Messi 44 or the beehive cluster, which is one of the best open clusters in the nighttime sky, which is really cool to mm-hmm. look at. Through. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Especially like, you know, binoculars or real wide field. Um, yeah. It's wonderful. Yeah. That's definitely, um, like a binocular gem or real small telescope kind of gem, but, uh, Cancer itself, um, you know, goes back to about 2000 BC, uh, uh, described as a scarab uh, in Egyptian records. And the Babylonians 
um, they saw it as, as a snapping crab. So, you know, this probably dates back to, to some of the earliest times. Um, and then of course, uh, you know, just to kind of go a little bit deeper on the, on the beehive. Um, one thing that's neat about the beehive is it was also known as uh, Preasa, which is Latin for, uh, the manger. And, uh, I believe if I, if I recall this uh, correctly, this was, um, perhaps the first object that Galileo, um, publicized in his starry messenger um, about uh, pointing the telescope uh, to a fuzzy spot in the nighttime sky and then seeing that break up into individual stars. And then he sketched that. And it was probably this object and his publication of that as as the first object that, that he did this to in the starry messenger that inspired a lot of other astronomers to really sit up and take notice of what he was doing and uh you know what what might be available in the nighttime sky for observation hmm. that's very interesting i did not know yeah that's kind of uh one of those things and i, I have like an excerpt the starry messenger there and you can go and and go into one of the online libraries and go through. Um, but like when you read somebody like uh, G.B. Hodierna's uh, observations, he points to this observation and reading this in Galileo's notes as the observation which motivated him to start uh, going on in his own and, and getting a Galilean type telescope and uh, and hunting things down in the nighttime sky. And certainly it had that sort of influence uh, on, on other uh, observers as well, of course. Like that's kind of, I think, really got the ball rolling. These aren't just misty spots or clouds uh, in the nighttime sky that, that are just fixed for some strange reason. These are actually stars. So they, they're not what they uh, necessarily appear to be, um, you know, at, at the outset. Mm-hmm. Interesting, mm-hmm. eh? Yeah, it is. It is very interesting. But like even since before the times of the telescope, that had been logged as, as a misty patch. It was, um, you know, seen as one of these misty patches by uh, Abdur al-Sufi and cataloged as such in uh, Bayer 1603 uh, Uranometria. And then just down and below, of course, this is a telescopic object, which is M67, which is uh, sort of right between um, the center of, uh, of cancer and, uh, and that weird little head of uh, Hydra, the water snake. Okay. Okay, cool. Then moving on to, uh, to sextants and, and like I said, with the small low power binoculars, you can see pretty much all of cancer. I I think it pretty much just fits in the field of view. Um, but with a pair of binoculars, like if you take any binocular and point it at the center of cancer, you're going to see the beehive cluster and it's going to break apart just like it did, uh, for Galileo. And then kind of moving down into the left or to the Southeast, you're going to get to sextants, the sextant, um, which was introduced by Johannes Hevelius in 1687. And it's a fainter constellation, but, um, and there, there, there's not much there, just one, uh, sort of bright ish NGC 3115, which is a lenticular uh, galaxy. Um, and there's no star above fifth magnitude, but again, you have these fainter stars that form this roughly sextant pattern. And then to be able to take like a super wide field binocular, get out to a dark sky and just to be able to identify, uh, that region and that pattern of stars is, uh, is kind of neat. And then as well, like NGC 3115 is, is a lenticular, but it's also in the ecliptic. So like the moon and that, uh, and the planets actually pass by it. There's also a good chance for comets, uh, to pass by, uh, 3115 as well. So good photographic opportunity. If you get a comet, uh, in that neighborhood, chances are, uh, make, make a close approach. Cool. Crater, the cup, uh, crater is, uh, 
is neat. Again, it, it, it sort of has these weird sort of antenna type patterns that Komodo was listed in Ptolemy's Algemest uh, is one of his 48 constellations, but uh, that means it was likely cataloged by the Babylonians uh, before him. And it has no star brighter than uh, third magnitude. It's got a bunch of uh, faint galaxies, but there's also the uh, Eta Craterids, which is a faint meteor star takes place at the end of January, the, I guess the middle of January, between the 11th and 22nd. Um, and then just has all these faint galaxies. But again, even though there's there's not um, as much to see there, like in a small telescope or from a light-polluted city, just being able to ID those, um, those patterns and that it's the cup that the crow um, was supposed to fill full of water to get for, for Apollo, I guess, is, uh, is kind of the, the interesting fact with it. Um, and then we have uh, Corvus the Crow, which is uh, another uh, Ptolemaic constellation. Um, brightest star is just 2.6 magnitude. So not very bright, but there are some interesting things here. I think the, the two really interesting things here are uh, NGC 4038 and NGC 4039, which are the antennae galaxy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And these are, these are pretty famous. Do you ever see those? Yeah, I think one of our spring grassland sessions, I'd have to check my logs, but I, I think we observed it once or twice at least. Yeah, I actually think that you and I went out to a site just uh, east of the city and observed it through your yeah, maybe. through your 12-inch when you had it. I think I remember doing that one night, or maybe maybe we were there with Mike, or maybe it was in the grasslands. But I remember we, we actually had observed that one together a number of years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a really neat object through, yeah, I, you definitely need some aperture for that one, I think, but it's, uh, it's well worth the search. Yeah. I could pick it up in the, in the five inch, but it was just like a fuzzy thing, but in the, uh, in the 12 inch telescope, you, you mm-hmm. could start to see that, uh, sort of unmistakable pattern. These are two interacting galaxies. And because of that interaction, there's a lot of disruption and, um, merging of gas and dust and star birth and, and all this type of uh, stuff going on. It's pretty cool. And then as well, one thing that's neat is right in the center of Corvus is uh, NGC 4361, which is a, uh, a planetary nebula. It's about 11th magnitude. It's not, uh, it's not really bright, uh, but it's neat to hunt down because it's almost like dead center in uh, what well, Corvus is, is not quite a square of stars, but it's sort of just like a, like an off square of stars. And mm-hmm. then almost just above the center of it. Yeah, just above the center of the square is this little planetary nebula, which is uh, well worth hunting down. I've seen that in my five uh, quite a few times. I, I always try to hunt it down uh, most spring uh, evenings when we're out. Then there's a couple of meteor showers that they found in Corvus. So I don't think any of these meteor showers are really that prominent, but this one of them they, they've traced back to, uh, to one of the uh, 11P uh, temples with linear comets. Um, but anyway, I'm, I'm not sure how visible any of those um, meter showers are. But uh, yeah, I mean, th- that's just kind of like a neat selection, I think, of uh, some of these more subtly springtime constellations. Um, yeah. Anything to, to add to that, Shane? Maybe just one, one more thing about Corvus while we uh, just finished talking about it. And, uh, you know, I think Corvus is, is kind of represented by that square or, or sort of trapezoid of, uh, you know, third magnitude stars. Um, and, and you mentioned that planetary nebula right in that, uh, probably almost in the same field of view or very close is, uh, another long period variable, uh, our, our Um, and it's nearly right in the middle of that trapezoid. 
Um, and, uh, it's, uh, it has a 317 day cycle and it goes from magnitude 6.7 down to 14.4, which mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, probably out of view or out of range for most, uh, yeah. amateur telescopes. You, you definitely need some aperture to get it at its uh, dimmest. Yeah. But if you're into variables, here's yet another one that will change its brightness over, you know, if, uh, but I, uh, close to a year, I suppose. But, you know, if it's, uh, if that intrigues you, um, you know, start, start doing some variable star estimates with that one. Yeah. I just looked it up. That's a mirror. That is a mirror type star though. That's a pretty, pretty famous one, I think. So yeah. yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Any, any, uh, any other stars that have uh, kind of struck your uh, interest? There's, there is one in Corvus again, like another double star system that is like one of the showpiece ones. Uh, it is a visually matched two plus one triple is how it's, uh, uh, designated here. So the magnitudes are 5.9, 5.9 and 10.3. Mm. Um, so the description here is it's a, a triple with an algo type, uh, detached eclipsing variable. Oh, wow. Um, so yeah, that's another interesting one to check out. That What's is Struve, Struve okay. 1669. Okay. Huh? Wow. That, that could be a pretty interesting one to, uh, to track down then. All right. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Well, that's some interesting stars. Thanks for that. Any any other ones that uh, have piqued your interest? Uh, no, that's all I have today, Chris. All right. Well, we are getting uh, towards the end here, so uh, thanks so much. Thanks so much for that, Shane, and thanks to everybody for listening. Be sure to subscribe in your pod catching software, and we're always excited to get your observing emails to actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.